0: are entering the Freedom Hut.
1: Tonight is the night we find out if President Trump is declaring a state of emergency at the border, what his plan is for the wall and to finally bring some security to our southern border. We'll talk about that and all of the latest coming up on The Buck Sexton Show.
0: This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission Our mission, is to decode what really matters
2: with actionable intelligence.
0: Russia.
1: One small family. Make no mistake. America. Great. Yeah. You're a great American again.
2: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NMIPD. Buck Sexton.
3: It is Buck Sexton. Now.
0: This idea that they need $5 5'7, 5, which they haven't even sent us a plan for until yesterday, we're looking at it now, um, is unrealistic. We want the symbol of America to stay as the Statue of Liberty, not a big concrete wall. The president has announced that he's going to address the country uh, tomorrow night on the so-called crisis of the border. I expect the president to lie to the American people. Why do we expect this? Because he has been lying to the American people and his spokespeople continue lying to the American people. There is no security crisis at the border. The only emergency at the border is a humanitarian emergency caused by this war on children. The president has no authority to usurp congressional authority uh, of the purse. Congress must appropriate funds. He cannot simply take funds appropriated for other purposes to build a wall because he declares a national emergency. And we would certainly oppose any attempt by the president to make himself a king and a tyrant by saying that he can appropriate money without Congress. That is perhaps uh, the most dangerous thing he is talking about since he became president.
1: Lies, lies, falsehoods, half-truths, myths, mistruths. The Democrats are throwing the everything and the kitchen sink at the wall, at Trump. They're doing everything in their power, anything in their power and beyond it to try and stop Trump from securing our southern border. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. My friends, it is go time here. The Democrats are starting to lose this argument. They have been very self-assured, very smug and, of course, sanctimonious because we are talking about Democrats. They've assumed all along that the old rules about shutdowns would apply, that the media would rally like the little lackeys they are. To the Democrat side and make sure that the blame, such as it is, goes to Republicans. The American people turn on their members of Congress for not opening the government in a timely fashion. Republicans cave, Democrats win, and the border in this case would not get secure. Doesn't look like that's necessarily going to be the case now, does it? We have heard, just to take a step back, because the border has been the single most important news story in the country for the last six months, with the only real exception being uh, that period when the Kavanaugh nomination took over. And we got right in the middle of that fight here on the show, as you know. Um, And thankfully, good prevailed over evil in that one. And I'm not sure that the right side is going to win in this border battle, but we're getting close. But I, I wanted to take a, a step back from what's going to be discussed tonight, his presidential address. Uh, it's going to happen at 9 o'clock Eastern. As you know, it'll be right after, right after we finish uh, this show. So I can't, I can't assess the address for you in, uh, over the course of this show, but certainly we'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, but but I wanted to give a context for what's coming tonight because there's definitely going to be a pitch from the president of the United States about why this wall needs to be built. The context, though, is that the, the Democrats and the left have no credibility on any issues relating to immigration whatsoever. They have lied and lied and lied. They said that the caravan was never going to reach our southern border they said that there were uh that there were no criminals in the caravan they said that the a wall would not work they say that walls have never worked they say that um there's no problem with our current asylum system it's not being abused people aren't lying they don't have they're not using loopholes they're isn't a lack of interior enforcement I mean, at every stage of our immigration process right now involving our southern border where there's any concern or conflict whatsoever. The Democrats tactic is to lie about it and then attack the other side. And the biggest one right now. And this just requires gall. I mean, this is nuts. Is there a saying and we came in with this that there's no crisis at the border. There's no crisis. They are willing, just as they have redefined an illegal alien to be a, quote, undocumented immigrant, they are willing to redefine the word crisis to be effectively meaningless. What is it that you would call a situation where laws are being broken on a daily basis to the tune of thousands tens of thousands over the course of a month, hundreds of thousands over the course of a year. What is it you would call a circumstance that allows for the violation on a daily basis in thousands of cases of U.S. sovereignty? What would Democrats call a situation where hundreds, perhaps thousands of women on a monthly basis are sexually assaulted what would Democrats call a situation in which drugs are pouring across the border at rates that are terrifying even to longstanding veteran members of Border Patrol? The cartels are more powerful in Mexico right now than they have been in recent memory. There's an argument to be made. There's, they're more violent than they have ever been. And there's an argument to be made that they are more powerful than they have ever been. They're just not going toe-to-toe with the government in quite the same fashion as they have in the past. But more to the point for all of us, the cartels are now the primary source of the poison, the opioids that are pouring in to cities and towns across the United States that are killing over 70,000 of our fellow Americans every year. In fact, the cartels, as I have told you, are creating pills to look like pharmaceutical pills so that they can sell them more easily on the street because the DEA and DOJ have slapped down doctors for overprescribing opioids, probably too much. So, I mean, there are probably people that are in a lot of pain now because they can't get the opioids. And to fill that need... Because you have a lot of addicts out there to fill that need. The cartels have swooped in. This has been going on for years, but it's more true now than ever before. If it's not a crisis when you have tens of thousands of Americans dying from illegal poison that is overwhelmingly coming from one place, what is it? What is the definition of a crisis then? You know why they don't want that to be the word that is used? Because the president has the authority to act if it is a crisis. He has the authority in statute. Democrats are running out of room with their lies. They do not want to secure the border. It's a joke. All they want to do is more expeditiously process those who arrive with overwhelmingly false claims or pre-produced claims, fabricated claims of imminent violence against them when in reality, they just want access into the United States. They want to skip the rest of the millions of people who are trying to get into the country legally and they don't care that their first act on U.S. soil is fraudulent. The very act of being here and and the premises under which they have entered the country are fraudulent. Democrats have no interest in stopping this And I think, finally, the American people are figuring this out. We do not believe these claims that they also want border security. They also believe uh, that this is a problem. I mean, they're saying it's not a crisis. We've had thousands of people parked at one of our ports of entry or one of our uh, border sectors trying to overrun Border Patrol and throwing rocks at them. If that is not a crisis, I need them to explain to me what is. And when you add on to this, the massive hypocrisy of Democrats who themselves all summer when it came to the issue of family separation. Oh, my gosh. Why would they do this? Why are they separating families that show up at the border from their children? This is they were saying that was a crisis. But everything else that's going on at the border, they're claiming is not. I mean, they. When it suits their needs, when the the news cycle, they think, plays into their hands, then they throw the, the term crisis around with reckless abandon. The moment that the usage of the word crisis opens up an opportunity for the president of the United States to address the crisis, to do something about the crisis, they change their minds. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that a situation that if you were a cynical observer of what Pelosi and Schumer and the rest of the Democrat gang wanted, uh, you would think, oh, that's exactly what I would have expected. Um, You know, you've got. The truth here is that this is a political fight for the Democrats has nothing to do with border security or national security Democrats are in a panic because they know that if Trump follows through on this promise it will be a symbol for everything else that he has promised and they have been telling us all along it will never happen Trump won't it's a joke in fact you're a rube you're foolish you were a clown if you believed President Trump when he said he was going to build a wall. You know, that, that, that you were unsophisticated in your thinking about politics. That's what the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, have been saying now for two years. They have already had to lick their wounds when it came to trying to take down this president with all their negative stories, all their personal attacks, all of their hysteria over collusion, over the 25th Amendment, over Trump is a racist, you know, whatever it is. They've thrown everything they have at Trump. They haven't been able to take him down. And they thought they'd be able to. They really believe that they'd be able to derail this presidency. And not only have they been incapable of derailing the presidency, now we stand on the precipice of the president achieving a political breakthrough. It hasn't happened yet, and we will see. But at least we are in the fight here, and Trump is leading the charge to get a political breakthrough that would not only change what's going on at our southern border and give us some hope of finally achieving control over who comes and who doesn't across our southern border. The entire narrative about Trump as some kind of a fraud who was fooling the gullible, would be untenable. I mean, there would be Betty in the media who would try to stick to it, but they would be the laughing stock. There'd be no way around it. They've been telling us all this time, for two years, the wall's never going to happen, and you're if you think it will, you're an idiot. In fact, if you think Trump's even going to try and get a wall, you're an idiot. Well, it looks like he's trying now, doesn't it? And if he... Manages to push this through. Libs will lose their minds. This is a a tense moment in politics. There are a lot of people who, for them, this is an issue of their own personal credibility, their professional future. A lot of journalists, members of Congress, activist organizations, they have built up this entire store of lies around the border and the whole thing just could come crashing down it's going to be interesting and i hope the president tonight gives us all he's got because the time is now Get into some more of the details of what's going on at the border we're going to have also my my friend, Annie McCarthy, I, I told him tonight, Annie, we're really going to need you to break down the legality here of whether they can or cannot build this border wall. But but then I, I meaning whether the president has the authority also under the law. And, and then we'll talk to him about this arrest of uh, and, and indictment of uh, I should say indictment, not arrest. Pardon me. Indictment of uh, Veselnitskaya, who is at the Trump Tower meeting, this Russian lawyer. That was getting some attention today. Andy will help us break that down. We'll have a White House correspondent from Daily Caller joining with the latest about what we can expect tonight in that address. And uh, we have much more show coming. Oh, and and free health care for illegals in New York City. What a surprise. That's all coming up. Stay with me, team.
2: Well, this is a very serious situation. President Obama called it a humanitarian crisis uh, when uh, 2014, when we saw tens of thousands of unaccompanied
1: children coming across the border, exploiting gaps in our immigration law.
2: But, you know, this is an entirely contrived and phony crisis right now. And by that I mean the political crisis here in Washington, where Ms. Pelosi and Senator Schumer simply want to beat President Trump. They want to deny him what he's
1: asking for, and they want the political benefit among their base for having done so. I think we can improve the security of our southern border, deal with the flow of heroin and other
2: illegal drugs, human trafficking, and migrant movement across the border illegally, which is creating this crisis at the border. You know, he mentioned
1: there, that was uh, Senator Cornyn, and, and he mentioned drugs the border and what's going on there. I actually have some stats here about the 2017 to 2018 narcotics situation at our southern border, there has been, in terms of seizures, and this is is over the last year, okay? This is what's going on now. A 22% increase in heroin seized, a 38% increase in methamphetamine seized, and a 73% increase in fentanyl. These are the drugs that are uh, heroin and fentanyl, particularly are the ones that are killing so many of our uh, fellow Americans. They're coming across the southern border. In fact, methamphetamine prices have dropped considerably. Meth right now, speaking to a law enforcement contact about this recently, Uh, meth is more pure and cheaper on U.S. streets when they're finding it than I I think it at any time. The price of meth has plummeted, and the cartels are just trying to keep the, the markets open somewhat. You know, that methamphetamine has almost become a loss leader for cartels, meaning that they're, they're trying to keep their supply relationships going, and they're making their money, their illegal drug trade money, on the fentanyl and the heroin. Um, and they're throwing in meth as kind of a, you know, a sweetener of sorts. Uh, because so much of the drug trade now is focused on these opioids because they're so powerful, so potent, and the market is uh, large for them. This is a crisis. People are dying. They're dying because we do not have a secure southern border. This stuff, if it were so easy to get illegal fentanyl on the streets of America, if it were so easy to get a doctor to prescribe it, the cartels wouldn't be making billions of dollars doing it illegally. We'll talk more about the expectations for the president's speech tonight. And and of course, the already prepped media backlash against it coming up.
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Republic for a political leader to try to seize power by the declaration of an emergency on made up facts. And you can look through history for the other autocrats, the other fascists, the other dictators who have tried to do and have, in fact, declared such things. It's disturbing.
3: Steve Schmidt, talk about the
4: weakness that it Steve betrays Smith, as well. Stop being I an idiot. How about that? We're
1: done with it. We're done with him. We're done with him. I just want to know that this is what passes for. Expert commentary on MSNBC. He says, they're all the fascists and the, you know, the bad people and the stuff and the, the Hitler. and the... Idiocy. Idiocy. Not even intelligent criticism of the president from a so-called, a so-called, I don't even know if he, I think he's now a Democrat. I don't know. He might as well be a Democrat if he's not. That's the guy who ran McCain's presidential campaign, by the way. Says a lot, doesn't it? You know, th- this is, Something I've been talking to a lot of um, people in D.C. about in recent weeks, because I've I've had my more than my fill of having to hear from, you know, whenever you turn on the TV or you're you know looking in different editorials, different papers, these uh, never Trump Republicans. When when are they going to wake up? I'm not saying they have to defend everything Trump does. I'm not saying anybody has to defend everything Trump does. I don't. I don't like some of the things that Trump has said and done. I don't agree with Trump on certain things. That's fine. But you got to pick a side. You know, you're you're on one team on these issues or you're on the other team. And I just, I can't help but notice that with a lot of these people... It's really, they pretend that it's all about the republic. You know, they pretend that they're all concerned with how Trump is using this declaration of emergency to seize power and, oh, my gosh, and the Constitution, he's shredding it. When really they're just upset and, in many cases, bitter and envious of people that have been elevated because Trump has won Um. Trump has won the election and his people, the people that are around him are not the standard GOP operatives. You have to remember that a lot of these voices you're hearing from the GOP establishment dynasties. From the McCain camp, from the Romney camp, from the Bush camp, the ones that are oh such, such principled critics of the administration the ones that have a blinding hatred for Trump, what they really hate is that they're not important anymore. What they really hate is that many of these GOP operatives and talking heads and consultants thought that they had paid their dues and it was their turn. And in the Trump era, they're shut out. And so what they're presenting to you, and Schmidt is certainly in this category, there are many others as well, what well, they're presenting to you as principled criticism and opposition is really, I want the toys and I don't have the toys, so I hate everybody. That's the tantrum that these anti-Trumpers in the GOP are engaged in. So, you know, I'm I'm perfectly willing to hear from uh, honest critics of the president, and, and as you know, I'm uh, still uh, on, on very good terms with some pretty uh, well-known critics of the president within the GOP over at National Review and other places. and But, you know, they call balls and strikes. They say the president did this well. The president didn't do that well. I don't like the president personally. I like the president's policies. That's a, that is a principled position. President Trump is a fascist. He's a Hitler. He's a, that's an idiot position. And the fact that they give airtime to people So they can say things like that, tells you all you need to know about the journalistic ethics or really the lack thereof at these major networks. They are disgracing themselves, but I don't think they have any integrity to protect. And when you have no integrity to protect, you have endless options. So I guess there's that upside. On this issue of the border and the possibility of a state of emergency declared so President Trump can start building this wall. Don't you think that if it were really about the effectiveness of the wall or the cost of the wall, and those two things go hand in hand, don't they? Uh, You know, if the wall is expensive and ineffective, it makes it even more of a political liability. But if it were about that, why such outrage about him starting this? If what they say is true, these phrases, you know, things people say, oh, you give me a 10-foot wall, I'll give you an 11-foot ladder— this is not these are not positions that have been thought out. These are slogans. This is trying to tap into a mob mentality to overcome a rational response to what is obviously an incredible problem we have. Which has led to 20 million illegal aliens in the country I mean, at, a, at a minimum that's the other issue that they've been lying to you about forever. You know, the, the more information we get about the border and about immigration, the more clear it is that there has been a bipartisan effort to hide the reality of our southern border from the American people. And I've even read wonky analysis by uh, national security geostrategists who say that this notion that the, that the immigration that we are in undergoing right now, if, if you took out of this the domestic politics and the identity politics and, and all of the toxic racializing of the issue that the Democrats do to make it sound like this is really just about keeping America white, they say things like that publicly, they, they claim things like that on TV, take that out from, from this discussion for a moment. And look at what's, what has been going on and is going on at our border. Any other country would consider it a crisis. Any other country would be doing everything in its power to stop this from continuing. And from a geostrategic position, if you were to analyze this, you'd say, hold on a second. Not only do you have a mass of illegal, uh, illegal intrusions into a country... That are changing the body politic of the the country in question that are that are reshaping its politics and having a profound impact on its culture. It's for a country that is contiguous with that country. Which historically leads to real instability and and leads to outcomes that, you know, we don't even want to consider right now, but, you know, political uh, instability that can have long lasting ramifications. You know, it's different when you have tens of millions of people from one country come to another country of a different culture, speaking generally a different language, when that country next door also has a history of having previously controlled, owned that land. You know, there is this concept of irredentism, the idea that a country will want back the land that it previously had. There used to be groups that would talk a bit about this also. The, the Reconquista, which was also a, a, a historical reference to the expulsion of the uh, Muslim conquerors of Spain, which finally was successful in 1492. And some of you have probably seen the movie El Cid and you know how all that stuff went. But uh, there is a difference between people coming from an ocean away and settling in America... And a country on our border that does not really respect the border and has a tremendous amount. I mean, we want to talk about foreign influence in elections. You want to talk about what the political implications are of having a foreign country having dispersed so many of its own people into another country. You know, no one ever thinks about this when you're talking about our southern border or not to say nobody, but. Uh, you know, and, and if you want to see what I'm uh, talking about, there, there's a, a book by Kaplan called The Revenge of Geography, where he talks about how geography, it's, it's essentially an academic explanation of how geography is destined. And he says what's going on with Mexico and, and the United States is not standard nation to nation relationship here, and it's not standard immigration either. You have people coming back and forth, you have people paying remittances, you have whole communities forming that are contiguous with the southern border that still have a tremendous affinity and connection to both legally and culturally to their home country. This is this is not a recipe for unity and success long term in this country to allow this to continue. The number is now 20 million. What are we going to wait till it's 30 million or wait over time? It'll be 40 million. And they're lying to you about the numbers. Not only are they lying to you about the numbers, but they also don't want to have more accurate numbers to present you with. Because if the American people really knew what was going on, they would be completely outraged. And the Pelosi-Schumer wing, or the Democrat Party, uh, wouldn't have a leg to stand on anymore. I mean, they would have to just go open borders. Which, I would note, I don't think that's an unthinkable position for them. Let me just take you back to this. You will recall that when Obama was pushing Obamacare, and I was right in the middle of that debate. I was just getting going in conservative media. I was at the blaze. Uh, people like me, among many, many other conservatives, I'm not saying that I was some kind of a, a visionary here, we were saying this is a this is a pathway to to single payer. This is a this is this is just meant to be a bridge to single payer. And they were saying, uh-uh. No, this is just the Massachusetts plan that Mitt Romney came up with. This is actually a conservative plan. This is a Heritage Foundation plan. We're not going to use this as a bridge. And here we are. Ocasio-Cortez, Warren, whoever the Democrat of the moment is, what are they talking about? Medicare for all, which is single payer. So what six years ago they were telling us was a slander against Democrats is now their policy. If we can't stop them now and build a border wall, I assure you it is well within the range of possibility that within six years, perhaps sooner than six years, especially if you have a Democrat president coming in 2020, you will have a mass amnesty. That's not that's the first thing they're going to do. A mass amnesty and. You will have a a an effort to have a comprehensive immigration reform reform. That will not only have the amnesty, but will also uh, do everything short of of completely erasing our southern border. People can come and go as they please, come back and forth. And, you know, all they're gonna all they're gonna want to do is tax productive activity in this country. As long as they can find you when you're here to tax you, if you make enough to be taxed, which most illegals don't, uh, then then that's all fine. That's what they're gonna want. It'll be the closest thing to open borders of any country in the world, and some of my well-intentioned but I think uh, slightly delusional libertarian friends will say, oh, well, this will just make us richer and better off. Really? I'd like to see the evidence for that. And don't just point to, we'll have a bigger GDP. Yeah, I know. That's like saying you'll have more, more bodies in a room. Great. What are they doing there? Uh, but it, it's, it's go time. The president knows it's go time. This issue uh, has to be resolved, and um, he, he should... He should declare a state of emergency tonight. If he, does, if he doesn't do it, I think he's missing a, a, a huge opportunity. And more importantly, I think he's missing what needs to be done for the country. And I have not heard any compelling, uh, any compelling reason for him not to do it. Not a single one. You, know, you have to remember that, too. When, when you hear the detractors, when you hear people who are a- opposed to this for some reason... There's always there's all this different stuff that they throw at they throw at you. And and when you deal with them one by one, you realize this is all flimsy. It's not that much money. It does work. Congress has voted for this on a bipartisan basis in the past. It is in his power to declare an emergency. We do have the technical know-how to build a barrier. So what what really is the opposition to this? Don't let Trump win. That's all it is don't let trump get his way if he gets his way on this the trump movement is actualized it is it is delivering it is successful it will have momentum ultimately what this really is about for pelosi and schumer is they know if trump gets this wall he's gonna win in 2020 they're gonna have trump for another four years What do you think they're willing to do to prevent that? What lengths are Democrats willing to go to to stop that from happening? Well, you're starting to see it. We've got more. Stay with me. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly
2: disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants.
1: The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. My gosh, that Bill Clinton is such a racist. How could he be such a racist? You know who else said stuff about how legal immigration was bad? Barack Obama. You know who else said stuff about how legal immigration is a cost, both economically and socially, in our country? Hillary Clinton. We can, we can play audio of all these different people. Chuck Schumer. Illegal immigration was bad until a couple of years ago. Maybe, you know, you go to the second half of the Obama administration when all of a sudden they were trying to get comprehensive immigration reform through, and then we realize, oh, wait a second, they, they aren't really opposed to this. They like this because it gives them power, because it plays into the identity politics and the state dependence that Democrats need in order to achieve power. So we're not playing on the same... We're not playing on on Team Border Patrol. They're playing on Team Open Borders. And we've realized this, but just like the way that Americans who are paying attention know the mainstream media is dishonest, the mainstream media still pretends it's not. People have figured out, a lot of them, that the Democrats are dishonest, but doesn't mean everybody's figured it out when it comes to immigration. Certainly, Mr. Snoop Dogg himself has not figured it out. He is rather upset about... What Trump is doing on the government shutdown. Let us, let us hear from Mr. Snoop.
0: Play. All you people for the federal government, that guy, not getting paid right now. Ain't no f***ing way in the world y'all can vote for Donald Trump when he come back up again. If it is, if y'all do vote for him, y'all some stupid mother. I'm saying that to y'all early. All you federal government people that's not being paid, that's being treated unfairly right now. Not being paid. That's so terrible. And this punk motherfucker don't care. So I'm saying that to say this, when they get back on and y'all get your jobs back and it's time to vote, don't vote for that. N- please don't. Look what he do. He just don't give a f-. y'all honest, blue collar, hardworking people and suffering. So if he don't care about y'all, he really don't give a f- about us. So f- him too. F- everybody down with Donald Trump. I said, a yes, Snoop Dogg, f- him he gonna shut the government down. He's a piece of
3: f- you.
1: I think we have a I think we have a Democrat 2020 candidate, folks. I I, <laughs> I think he's I think he's he's ready for for Iowa. You know, if they're okay with their Congress Congresswoman speaking about Trump uh, that way, uh, why not have Snoop Dogg in the mix? By the way, if he ran, I'm sure a lot of a lot of millions, tens of millions, of Democrats would vote for him. So there's that. Annie McCarthy's coming up. He's going to make some legal sense of all this. So stick around for that want to introduce you to a new conservative alternative to all those super lib progressive email services, ipatriots.us. ipatriots.us is secure and private. It has more of what you want with none of the nonsense, all those ads and spam. Forget that stuff. With ipatriots, you get 30 gigs of cloud storage and larger attachment sizes, just a better all better overall email system for your use, and they won't sell your information or support liberal agenda items like a lot of those free email providers out there. So show you're a patriot. Go check out ipatriots.us, knowing that it's compatible with most mobile devices, iPhone, iPad, Android, Windows Mobile, BlackBerry, you name it. You go to ipatriots.us now. Choose your membership program and input your desired ipatriots email address during checkout. You enter promo code buck, that's B U C K for 10% savings during your first year of membership. Again, enter promo code buck for 10% savings during your first year of membership.
4: There's no question that we will litigate and there will be litigation. These are moments in our country where the beauty of the design of our democracy is being tested. And if you think about our democracy or the republic as being a tabletop, standing on four legs, there are three independent co-equal branches of government and a free and independent press. And so what is happening? Over and over again in the last two years is those other branches of government and the the courts and the press will put the checks and balances on the outrageous conduct of this administration. If he declares an emergency, I think that we will see again the checks and balances kick in, in particular through the courts.
1: Lawsuits are coming. Not a surprise, I think. But uh, how will those shake out. Does the president have the authority to declare a state of emergency and build a wall? Is he, in fact, the commander in chief who can do that? We have with us now the one and only Andy McCarthy, writer for National Review, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor. Andy, great to have you back.
2: Happy New Year. Buck, happy New Year. Great to be here.
1: All right. So we we don't know as we go to air here whether the president will, in fact, declare a state of emergency tonight. But let's because it doesn't have to be tonight, right? So it doesn't really, if he does, well, then he has. He could also declare a state of emergency in a week or a month, uh, assuming the situation, the border's the same and, and the, the president decides to. What what in your mind happens, Andy, if he goes that route? I mean, how, how does this play out? We we, we know this much. Someone's going to file a lawsuit over it.
2: Yeah, well, I have mixed feelings about this, Buck, just because I think it's, it's really bad policy. I thought this when Obama did it. Um, You know, one classic example with Obama, everybody thinks about uh, his own immigration pronouncements, right, which were completely unsupported by statutory law and were undertaken, even though he wasn't relying on a statute that talked about declaring an emergency. He basically said that there was an emergency because Congress wouldn't do what he wanted it to do, so he just did it, and the press didn't seem to whipped up about that, but they're obviously uh, always whipped up about Trump. I think it's bad policy for the president to do th- this sort of thing. I, um, you know, the way our governing framework is supposed to work, we really don't have three co-equal branches of government. Congress is supposed to be the Article One branch. They're supposed to be the ones uh, making policy. It hasn't really been that way since the progressive era, but that's not the The way it's supposed to be or the way it's supposed to be is that Congress writes the laws and the the president carries them out. And the other thing that's interesting here, Buck, is he does have undoubtedly, I think, statutory authority to do this. And those the statutes, which these kinds of statutes are strewn throughout the federal code. One of the things I don't like about them is this is the way that Congress abdicates. It's duty that we elect them to carry out, so they you know they take a bunch of their legislative authority and they delegate it to the administrative state agencies uh and then they take another bunch of their authority and they delegate it to the president uh, and then they go on cable t v and complain that they don't like the way things are, but in the meantime they don't do the job that we sent them there for. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this buck is the statutes allow him to declare. Uh, a state of emergency, and even allow him to reallocate or reprogram funds, Defense Department funds, uh, if he finds that it's a you know it's a a, a national emergency that requires uh, the military. Uh, he can he, he the statutes say he can do this. There is nothing in the statutes that allows or calls for the court to be able to review this. The Congress has basically left this up to the president's judgment um but i think two things are interesting one is if there is an emergency on the border it's caused by congress's laws um and you know basically court decisions or litigation that the justice department was involved in uh but the situation that we have with uh, this new dominant class of um of, of asylum seekers who come to us which are now predominantly families with children as opposed to, um, you know, these are families with children from Central America rather than working-age men from Mexico. So the demographic of the population that wants to come in has changed. Our law has not kept up with it, so it's it's basically overwhelmed our ability to deal with it administratively. But basically Trump would be invoking – a statute to address an emergency that's been caused by statutes.
1: Now, Andy, a lot of very important stuff to chew on there, uh, courtesy of, of Mr. McCarthy. Uh, but one thing that really struck uh, struck me as you, as you were speaking there, which is that this this idea that you're telling me that the president probably does have the authority, and it may not even be reviewable by courts. Is that is that right?
2: yeah well here's the thing buck um there's what yeah, that's should a big deal and there's what yeah well there's what should happen and there's what does happen so it, we have a a number of these laws that give the president sweeping authority to deal with crises, and most of these laws allow the president to decide whether there's a crisis or not unilaterally, and they don't allow for uh court review of that. The, the statutes basically say if the president in his judgment decides X, then we have to assume X and then he can do the following things, which are in the nature of legislation, which is why I object to this. And it's correct for a number of my friends who are legal analysts to say that should be judicially unreviewable because the statute doesn't allow for judicial review. But what I keep saying Back down here on planet Earth, where uh, President Obama in eight years put 340 judges on the federal bench, many of whom are progressive activists, the fact that statutes don't allow for judicial review has not to this point prevented them from
1: engaging in judicial (laughs) review. (laughs)
2: Right. Um, You know, so I don't know that the fact that either the statutes say what they say. Or past precedent indicates that the president has this kind of sweeping authority is going to back up a a progressive activist who's been put on, you know, the federal district court someplace. And what we've seen again and again and again is that uh, these judges are willing not only to block the president, but try to to impose their orders as if they were uh, national hamstrings on the president rather than you know something that just affected that judge's district
1: how would you assess your your certainty we're speaking to annie mccarthy everybody of national review and fox news contributor uh andy how would you address uh assess your and address your your certainty about uh whether the president fundamentally has the power to do this i mean is this a is this a clear call is this a gray area issue because you're hearing people say he just flatly can't right but they're democrats
2: yeah of course right i i say uh you know th- this is why this this question is hard but if we were just dealing with the four corners of the statute, um i'd say he absolutely has the authority i wouldn't have any uh i, I wouldn't have any hesitancy and,
1: and, and what is the it. applicable statute uh
2: I, I you know i had it in front of me uh a second ago and i should have known you were going to ask me that question but ah here it is it's it's uh Section 2293 of Title 33 of the U.S. Code, um, which basically empowers the president to declare a national emergency and to reprogram funds to construct civil defense projects if the president deems that they're essential to national defense. So the statute says if the president decides that there is a national emergency, um, and you know it it enables him to do various things including See, I- reallocate funds. So that's what the statute says. But when when you have these these progressive analysts who are saying he absolutely doesn't have the authority, what they are assuming is something that doesn't that the statute doesn't say, but they may well turn out to be right about, which is that some judge is going to look at that and the justice department's going to say there's nothing in this statute, Your Honor, that gives you the authority to review the president's decision, and the judge is going to say, I don't see anything in here that tells me I can't. Uh, and then we're off to the races.
1: So, right. See, but this, this is also really important. I think that very few people because it hasn't come up much in the discussion, the news coverage of this, would know that this isn't an implied, you know, a lot of time with presidential authority, you get into implied power or, you know, under his role as commander in chief or in his executive role, we, we we assume or we have in the past, you know, said that there's the discretion. You're and of course, that's why we have Andy McCarthy on the show. He's actually got the statute right in front of him. Uh, You're telling me that, no, it is explicitly the law that he can do this. And I think people need to hear that and know that.
2: Buck, let me let me read you the first two lines of the statute. In the event of a declaration of war or a declaration by the president of a national emergency, In accordance with the National Emergencies Act, that's a whole other statute that deals with when the president declares national uh, emergencies that requires or may require the use of the armed forces. So what the statute explicitly says is in a situation where the president has declared that there's a national emergency that requires the armed forces, there's nothing in that statute that says a judge has the authority to second-guess the commander-in-chief who we've elected – Uh, on the question whether there is a national emergency that requires the use of the armed forces. Now, I don't agree that Congress should be giving the president these kinds of uh, sweeping powers. I would prefer, since we're not in the 18th century anymore and it's not hard for Congress to convene, I'd rather we waited most of the time until there was an actual emergency and let the Congress pass a statute that tells the president what he can do. But this isn't like the law, according to Andy, this is federal law, and the Congress has given the president this authority.
1: That's that's really, uh, you know, it's important stuff, and I'm glad I'm glad we're we're helping get it out there. People should really know this. And yes, it, it will go into the courts. Real real quick, Andy, before you have to go into a break, um, the if a court, let's you know, the Ninth Circuit, if they enjoin this. Uh, how long before we'll get an answer as to whether the president is right? You know, it has to make it most likely. I know that the courts have, you know, the Supreme Court has to agree to take it. But what's the timetable here?
2: Well, Buck, I think that if, if we go by the travel ban, the president put the travel ban into effect in, in January 2017, right after he got uh, elected. And it ultimately was decided by the Supreme Court, I believe, in June of 2018. So about a year and a half. Um, now, that doesn't mean that this is necessarily uh, a model for everything else, but I can, I can tell people from experience, um, federal judges and, and courts in general, including appellate courts, you know, one of the great things about our system is we expect them to enforce the law because we don't put political pressure on them. They're not accountable to voters, but that, always, that also means that they march to their own beat and they decide things when they're good and ready to decide them. So we may think something's an emergency and it needs to be resolved right away. But, you know, the courts get around to things when they get around to things.
1: Andy, can we keep you to talk about Vels the Sky for just a couple minutes after the break? Yeah, of course. Sure. Guys, we got Andy McCarthy. We're going to talk about this latest tie-in to possibly the Mueller probe, or is it or isn't it, or Southern District, what's going on, a lawyer with uh, with, with ties into this whole Russia mess from the meeting at Trump Tower. She's gotten herself indicted. Andy's going to explain what it means coming up. All right, we're back with Andy McCarthy here. Andy, so we've gone over national emergency powers in the president, but now tell me, what is this about Natalia Veselnitskaya, who was the lawyer who sat down with Don Jr., Kushner, and Manafort in Trump Tower, also has ties to Fusion GPS, by the way, and that whole Hillary Hillary connection. What, What do you make of this? She's been indicted for obstruction by the Southern District. People are confused, but they know there's something up.
2: Yeah, well, Buck, you know, this is very interesting to me because over a year ago, I wrote a column about the curious case of Natalia Veselnitskaya, uh, and the connection there, aside from what we knew about her in connection with uh, Don Jr. and the Trump Tower meeting, is the fact that she was in the United States uh, operating as a lawyer and there was a lot of talk at the time that maybe the justice department had set don jr up by letting her come here to um have this meeting it turns out she's come a couple of times um and only once at the behest of the justice department and it wasn't if that wasn't the time that she had the trump tower meeting but she shouldn't have been allowed to come to the united states this was my argument in the, in the first place because she's not eligible to work as a lawyer here. And what she said she wanted to do here was be a lawyer for a Kremlin-connected uh, big business guy from Russia, the, the Katzibs, who run a, uh, a business called Prevazon Holdings that was connected up with the, uh, the murder and the distribution of millions of dollars in, in fraudulent proceeds that was uh, uncovered by this guy, Sergei Magnitsky, who the Magnitsky Act uh, is named after.
0: Uh, I guess imprisoned I be and beaten here. to I death, was yeah.
2: Try- yeah. I was not trying to um, implicate Katsev in the murder. I don't know that there's any evidence of that, but he was implicated and his business was implicated in the distribution of these fraudulent proceeds. And the Southern District, did a money laundering civil forfeiture action to try to claim about $14 million of the proceeds from him. And she worked on the case to help represent him, but she's not a lawyer in the United States. She's not authorized to practice law here. And I think the Southern District was pressured by the judge to allow her to come into the united states for purposes of the litigation and as i pointed out in the the piece i wrote uh, over a year ago um you know while she was here um she she really didn't do much of anything uh, of value at least that the that the court or the government could detect uh, for purposes of the case but she did bill american taxpayers a lot of money to you know stay in the plaza and live the high life for a few weeks so why is she arrested well, she's, now they're saying that in connection with this representation that she really shouldn't have been allowed to participate in because she's not – again, she's not eligible to be a lawyer here. She provided the Southern District of New York with essentially false exculpatory evidence about the connection of the Katsivs to the scheme and whether the Russian government was involved at all in the murder of Magnitsky – and as you may recall, Buck, one of the big things that she's pushed here is she's been basically Putin's activist in the United States to try to get Congress to repeal the Magnitsky Act. Putin hates the Magnitsky Act because it it allows the government to try to attach millions of dollars that, uh, you know, belongs to his cronies and maybe part of uh, his own personal fortune, for all I know. Um, but one of his big pet peeves has been to try to get this thing repealed, and she's been his point person on that. And the way that they, this shtick works is that you know she basically runs around and says uh, it was Magnitsky and this guy Bill Browder, who were the real frauds who stole all the money, and they've pinned the whole thing on the poor Kremlin – and the Kremlin's innocent. That's her, you know. That's the that's the Andy. thing that she peddles.
1: Andy, hold hold that thought. So, we got We got to hit a quick commercial break, and when we come right back. You, we can finish with what this means about the Mueller probe. Everybody, stay with me. All right, Andy. Sorry, we you know we, we gotta we gotta keep the lights on. So We gotta go to our commercial break there. <laughs> sorry, um, but, but but just tell me what. So we're, we're talking about Veselnitskaya. She's the lawyer at Trump Tower. Initially, they say it's about adoptions. She's there with Donald Trump Jr. with Jared Kushner with Manafort. You're saying she has been the Putin, the Kremlin's point person in the U.S., effectively working as an agent of influence for Russia, trying to get the Magnitsky Act repealed, the Magnitsky Act named for Sergei Magnitsky, uh, which we know about because of Bill, well, know about a lot of people know about it because of Bill Browder, his book Red Notice, where essentially there's a huge fraud. The Russians tried to steal a bunch of money. Magnitsky figured it out and they killed him in prison. It's used to sanction bad people around the world. Now we find out that she, meaning Veselnitskaya, was essentially playing, what, playing the Southern District for fools? And so now they're going to prosecute her for obstruction. Is that, is that pretty much where we are right now?
2: Yeah, you've, you've basically nailed it. She was involved uh, in the case uh, against Prevazon Holdings that the Southern District brought. Prevazon Holding is run by the Katzev family, who are pals of Putin's. And she basically uh, provided evidence that was exculpatory of them and exculpatory of the Russian government in connection with the uh, the murder of magnitsky.
1: and And so does this have anything you know people reporting on this today, you know lawyer tra- a lawyer tied to Trump Tower meeting indicted and there was all this, oh, this sounds like Mueller. but from what you're telling me, this sounds like she just got into a jam that is that is truly unrelated, at least with regard to these charges, to Russia collusion, Trump Tower meeting, or any of that stuff. Is that your read, or is there another layer to this?
2: Well, I think that is my read book, but let's let's caveat this with what we've experienced in connection with Cohen, right? So Michael Cohen was also prosecuted by the Southern District uh, for crimes that were seemingly unrelated to Trump, and that led him to be basically... You know, squeezed, and put him in a position where, uh, you know, Mueller was able to get out of him, or the Southern District was able to get out of him. Um, I, I guess Mueller also additional information over which he was prosecuted. Remember, Mueller then uh, prosecuted him for making false statements in a transaction that shows that the the, the Trump Organization was negotiating this Trump Tower in in Moscow throughout 2016. Uh, They didn't cut it off at the beginning of 2016, as as Trump had represented. So, you know, if they have her jammed up and they can acquire her presence, I don't know if she's actually been arrested. I assume if she's in Russia, um, we'll never see her again. Uh, But if they can actually arrest her and and get her to provide information, uh, that could redound to the benefit of Mueller's investigation if if what we've seen in Cohen's case uh, is any indication, but we'll just have to wait it out and see what happens.
1: Andy McCarthy, everybody of National Review, read his latest there. Also, look for him on Fox News. And uh, Andy, as always, my friend, thank you so much for being really generous with your time today. And we will talk to you soon.
2: Thanks so much, Buck. Great to talk to you. Take care.
1: You know, I, I had a chance, Andy. I know we went long there with, with Andy. I, I just he's he's one of he's one of the most knowledgeable, humble, and nicest guys in in the business you know i can tell you that andy and he, it's not just me who falls in this category you know if i have a question about something i can reach out to andy so because i i never want to you know get ahead of my skis or uh or you know mess up on a legal matter you know i can go to andy and, and he's always, he's just very generous with his time he's a really good dude and you know uh credit to fox for for picking him up and understanding how important his voice is in the current the current conversation about the entirety of our justice system and what's really happening. I mean, I had a chance today on uh, on Rising, and actually, this was a, a pre-taped interview, so you're getting a little preview of what's coming up tomorrow. One, uh, well, we had we had a phenomenal sit-down with Grover Norquist. That guy is a mean, lean tax analysis machine. We had a lot of fun talking about taxes. Man, he he gets into those taxes. Uh, but I talked to a a woman who is a longtime. Uh, judge in the immigration courts. and there's some very important takeaways from that interview that you can see on hill.tv uh, tomorrow. Uh, one of them is is that the court this this idea that people are showing up at our border and they just want their day in court is preposterous, okay? Because it, it, the backlog, it is being made worse, I'm just going to say it. it's the backlog's being made worse right now by the shutdown. So the backlog is going up and it's already 800,000 cases, 800,000 cases, you have judges who are seeing 50 or 60 immigration cases a day. How, th- I think about how many hours in a day there. How, how can you spend any real time? I mean, this is just, this is pro forma. And you know, I asked, and, and there's different categorizations of what kind of individuals are coming before them within the immigration system. But I said, uh, you know, what is the you know, she was very clear and look, I could tell the judge leans a little leans a little left. And I'm going to get into that in a moment. When I said, you know, what is the number of people who are no shows for their hearings? You know, what is that? What is the number um, of people who just do not ever, you know, show up when called? And she said it's about 10 percent of immigrants don't show up for their hearings. Now, keep in mind, if you miss your hearing date, you go to the back of the line, which could mean, you know, uh, more, you know, more years of of waiting. And if you miss it, for example, because of the government shutdown, if you miss it through no fault of your own, if you miss it and you're in default, I assume they or you know, you're just a no-show, whatever they call it. I assume that they probably move to uh, removal proceedings, but then they have to find you. And, you know, you got 800,000 people in the immigration court system right now uh, who are trying to have their claims adjudicated. And you've got I asked her how many unaccompanied minors and she said this was anecdotal. So this was not an official statistic. I said, how many unaccompanied minors uh, are staying in the country that you see? Meaning if you show up at the border, you're, you know, 16, 17 years old. What's the chance you get to stay in the country legally? Never mind if you just stay because you're not going to be deported because you're not going to be deported. And she said it's about 40 percent. So getting pretty close to half. And I can tell you this, half of them are being waved in by immigration judges and the other half are being told, well, you have to go home, but we got to figure out how to do that. And you're a low priority. So they're never going to get deported and sent back to their families in their home country where they're actually a citizen. So the immigration courts themselves are a huge problem in this whole process. The immigration courts have lots of these judges that have effectively a more of the merrier attitude that's going on here. So You've got to keep that in mind. We've got a White House correspondent joining us in a moment to give a little preview of what's coming up tonight.
2: Vice President's basic point, Democrats are ignoring a crisis and says the president really is considering declaring a national emergency to go around Congress. Your response?
4: It's just not true. It's just simply not true. There was a bipartisan effort out of the United States Senate and the United States Congress to uh, pass a, a funding of the government. And the president is holding it up because of his vanity project, which is this wall at taxpayers' expense and at the expense of hundreds of thousands of workers who are working every day without being paid. Um, so it's just simply not true. So it's an emergency could, of his own but if
1: he decla- Is the president going to declare a national emergency? We're going to know here shortly after the show finishes up, but it, it looks very possible. we got somebody who can give us a bit of insight to the uh, intrigue and, and the backstory going on at the White House right now. Amber Athey is with us she is the Daily Callers White House correspondent and uh, she's she's with us Amber thanks so much for for joining
3: of course thanks for having me Buck
1: all right so what what did what are you hearing from folks at the White House first of all I mean is is it clear that he is going to declare a state of emergency is this one of these things where he hasn't done it yet but everybody everybody who knows kind of knows he's going to
3: Yeah, it's not totally clear. Uh, My sources haven't indicated one way or the other whether he's going to. The only thing that I've heard definitively is that this speech is going to make news. Um, And that's happening tonight at 9 o'clock. The reason I'm leaning towards him declaring the national emergency is because of all of his statements over the past week. Um, He first brought this up, I think it was last Wednesday. And then he repeated it again later where he said he would see how the government shutdown negotiations went over the next few days to determine whether or not he would declare a state of emergency. Based on the fact that the negotiations haven't progressed at all, the Democrats are still um, offering something like $1.6 billion for the um, vague border security, whereas Trump, of course, wants 5.7 for a wall, humanitarian aid, and a few other measures. Uh, the fact that they're still at that impasse leads me to believe that the only way the president is going to get what he wants in terms of wall funding is to declare a national emergency and bring in the military to build it.
1: And, and so the, the the Democrats' their position right now is that they're are they still they still have this one point whatever one point seven billion one point six billion that's on the table, but that's all that's on the table, right?
3: Right, and that's not for a wall. That's the important distinction. That's not you know, meeting the president sort of close to halfway for wall funding. They're talking about a much more vague uh, version of border security. And what they're mainly referring to there is technology like sensors and cameras, uh, what some people might refer to as a virtual wall, but it in no way includes steel flats or concrete walls or any kind of actual physical barrier on the border, which is really going to be a non-starter for the president.
1: And I would also note that this is not reported by other folks as much. I'm sure you've been on this one, Amber, uh, that the, the president, as, as part of what he's asked for at the border, there's emergency humanitarian funding, essentially more beds, more doctors, more judges, more lawyers, more, more of everything to deal with the border. But Democrats don't talk about any of that either. They're just like, oh, he just wants his wall. That's all he wants. Meanwhile, uh, I, I think that they're starting to lose this argument that the wall doesn't work. And enough people who are senior in Border Patrol down through the ranks of just seasoned Border Patrol agents um, see and, and have seen uh, recently at Sandy Di- at the San Diego San Ysidro uh, border crossing that it does, in fact, work. So so I think that line has been tough. I think the it's too much money when you're talking about Democrats is kind of laughable. So really, this gets boiled down to it's just about political opposition to Trump more than anything else.
3: That's exactly what it is, because this wall wasn't something that Trump just dreamed up out of nowhere. Um, You could make the argument that perhaps the idea of a concrete wall all the way across the border wasn't realistic. But the wall is something that Border Patrol agents have been asking for, and they've specifically asked um, for the latest uh, sort of what Trump calls the wall, which is the steel slats, because they want something that's see-through so that they can see threats coming on the other side of the border. Um, An important aspect of this, and this is something that came out yesterday, is if the president does decide to declare a state of emergency, um, he would face a congressional challenge. They can pass a joint resolution um, nullifying the state of emergency. But yesterday, uh, the White House said that the one point of agreement between Democrats and Republicans was that there is, in fact, a crisis at the border. So it's going to be difficult to convince, especially the Republican led Senate to vote against the president's state of emergency when Democrats have already admitted there's a crisis going on.
1: Yeah. I've I started off the show today talking about how this, this idea that there is no crisis at the border when all summer we were being told is because they wanted to run lots of footage of, you know, babies crying and, you know, they, they've been telling us there's a crisis all along now that Trump is trying to ag- address The crisis and use his powers, which we've which which have been established here. We've talked to Andy McCarthy or we'll be talking to Anthony McCarthy about this, establish the powers to do this. He has them under statute. This there's no crisis line. I think it's desperate. I think the Democrats are they're running out of leeway.
3: Well, especially when this was the same party that was trying to blame the president and blame Border Patrol agents for the death of two children on the border. Um, But when you look into that, you find it's actually policies that are encouraging illegal immigration and encouraging families to try to cross the border. Um, The family of the, I believe he was eight years old, the eight-year-old boy who died, maybe he was seven, his family admitted that they brought him to the border because they thought that he would have an easier time getting the family into the United States. So when you have policies that encourage things like that, you encourage parents to bring children on their trek across the border. There's no physical barrier there to stop them. They can claim asylum as soon as they get one foot on U.S. soil. Those are all things that need to be addressed. I think the wall is one starting point. Broader immigration reform will be the next step.
1: And I, I want to switch gears for a moment. We're speaking, uh, we're speaking to Amber, Amber Athey over at uh, The Daily Caller. She's the White House correspondent. So she's in the White House all the time and and following up with all these people. Uh, Amber, Jim Schuto from CNN, yes, uh, whom I've had my I've had my own uh, interactions with in person and and in cyberspace. Uh, he he and you had a had a little dispute today. Why don't you just tell us what happened?
3: Yeah, so Jim Schuto, he is a former Obama official. He's now a CNN anchor. Um, quite a transition. He has been claiming basically for the past year, um, this was just the most recent of many claims, that Republicans were the first to fund the Steele dossier, which if you know the timeline of this, you know it's simply not true. Um, The Washington Free Beacon, of course, paid for standard opposition research from Fusion GPS. Months later, after they stopped paying, the DNC and Clinton, uh, the Clinton campaign took up a new contract with Fusion GPS to Compile this dossier about Trump's connections to Russia. They hired Christopher Steele to look into that. It was totally separate from anything that the Free Beacon was doing with Fusion GPS. It's pretty cut and dry. Shudo, of course, keeps claiming that Republicans started the dossier. It's, I guess it's some kind of way to absolve Democrats of creating this um, very much unverified document. He made the claim again today. I uh, pointed it out on Twitter. And he refuses to address the fact that the claim is not accurate. Instead, he responds in this condescending manner, quoting um, what he said from the transcript as if that somehow makes what he said any more factual. Uh, So I'm going to be on this. I'm still working, uh, reaching out to CNN and talking to people um, who know the dossier inside and out to try to get a correction on this claim. But based on how long I've been pushing him on this, it seems more and more unlikely.
1: Yeah, well, he is—he is, he excels in smarm. By the way, he, he likes to. Oh yeah, to, uh, he's very
3: condescending. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I, I will—I will tell you—he's a smarmy fellow, and and uh, and he's one of these people also that that will occasionally do the reach out to me personally, be like, you know, for your own good, I think you should tone it down on X or Y, and I'm always like, for your own good, don't talk to me, clown show. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah,
3: well, one person responded to him and said something like. Sue her. She's defaming you. And I'm like, try it. Sue me, because I know I'm right. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. Exactly. No, I CNN, fake news, unabashed, unabashedly so. They revel in it's, it. They Fake news is the water in which they swim, and the water I is mean, warm. It's,
3: it's one thing for, you know, if everybody in the media gets things wrong sometimes. I get things wrong. I try to correct them and apologize when I make mistakes. This is just... Uh, so intentional and it's repetitive that it's become malicious at this point. Yep. There's no interest in correcting the record.
1: Absolutely the case. Well, I just wanted to get that on the record. Amber Athey, everybody of the Daily Caller. Amber, great work. Come back, talk to us soon.
3: Thanks so much, Buck.
1: You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member. But did you know that the AARP is really a left wing organization? The AARP fought tooth and nail for a government run health care system, and they stood against tax cuts for middle class Americans. So forget about the AARP, but get all the benefits you get from the AARP with a better organization. I recommend AMAC. Why AMAC? Well, you see, AMAC is all about the things that you're all about. Border protection, limited government, limited taxation. It is the conservative alternative to the AARP. And over 1.5 million Americans have already joined AMAC, and that number is growing. If you're a conservative, you're eligible, and you Want all the benefits of AARP without the liberal nonsense? Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great, but the cause is even greater. Tell your family, tell your friends. Join us right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot slash buck. AMAC, better for you, better for America. Oh, the media pretends that they aren't a bunch of anti-Trump lunatics. We know this, right? We know the mainstream media is still clings desperately to this fiction that they're just they're just like reporters telling the truth man like they're just speaking truth to power they can't even know like whatever man false you could say fake news they're lying this is not true and the ruse is wearing very thin you know this is not going to continue all that much longer i think people have gotten too wise to this you know if you want liberal news you should watch liberal news If you want conservative news, you should watch conservative news. Everybody's facts have to be accurate or else they have no credibility. The issue should not be about whether, you know, to be objective is not the same thing as to be factual. That's where the that's where the illusion lies here. To be objective is not really feasible in the news business because of all the decisions that are made around editorial and narrative. Right. To be objective is not something that you can. You can really say with a straight face for the most part. There are some people that I think do a pretty good job of presenting narratives that try to be objective to the events happening in the news cycle, but very few. That all said, CNN is not in that category. CNN is the hashtag resistance, and they're not even as good at being the resistance as MSNBC. So, really, they're the runner up resistance channel. They're just even a little bit crazier. Uh, But there was quite an exchange caught today over at the uh, over at the White House, um, over on the White House lawn, where for those of you who you catch it sometimes on TV, they have almost these little stalls set up with with canopies over them where the different reporters will do their hits at the White House. You know, it really is set up. So you have the White House as the backdrop and you have your White House reporters there set up. But I've been over there a bunch of times and, and you you see people coming and going out there on the lawn and and sometimes you have a little exchange with them. Right. Well, here's an exchange that uh, was a bit a bit spicier than the average one. This was Jim Acosta, Jim Schuto and Miss Kellyanne Conway getting into it. Play 15. Kellyanne, can, can you promise that the president will
2: tell the truth tonight? Will he tell the truth?
4: Yes, Jim. And can you promise that you will? I will. the whole truth Absolutely. and nothing but the truth to so help you God am I allowed to mention God to you.
2: problem like you do
4: uh, now well that you know Jim, I know that's a truth? cheap? make sure that goes viral okay this is why by, by the way this is why I'm one of the, the only people around here who even check. gives you the time of day
2: can you can you guarantee? and let me let me just let me get back in your face
4: because you're such a smart ass most of the time and I know you want this to go viral a lot of these people don't like you but let me just be respectful to the media at large as I always am I explained that that was alternative information additional facts and I explained it many Many times, And don't you put it back in my face for all the corrections that your network needs to issue. I was on your network 25 or 26 times in 2018. I'm one of the last people here who even bothered to go on. And the disrespect that you showed to me personally, I'll just look past. Ma'am, um, I, I no, no, I just no, and don't call me ma'am to, to make it up. Tonight.
1: Jim Acosta is a smug schmuck. He just is. I mean, he should be an embarrassment to CNN. Meanwhile, he's more valuable to CNN than ever before. What does that tell you about that network? Um, why does he, by the way, I think I thought Jim shuto was in that clip. I may have, I may be, it may have just been Jim Acosta. Was shuto in there as well? Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. No, it, he wasn't there. That wouldn't make sense. I'm sorry. I got, I got my Jim's, pardon me. I retract. See, unlike CNN when I'm wrong, I'll say it. Jim shuto wasn't there as well. It was just Jim Acosta. I got my Jim's messed up. Uh, I, got, I got Shuto on the mind because we are talking to Amber about him before. But, you know, Acosta is just act, acting like a punk here. I mean, can you imagine for a moment the backlash that would happen if you had a major network reporter, a multimillionaire network reporter who said, is President Obama going to tell the truth tonight? Is President Obama not going to be a liar? That's not a question that's an attack. We're not a bunch of infants. We understand what you, sorry, what Acosta is trying to, they're interchangeable, really, what Acosta is trying to do here. And the fact that Kellyanne stands her her ground there and, and tears back into him is just great. You know, this is for all of the unfinished business of the Trump administration. And there's a lot, right? there's a lot of things that have not been accomplished yet. Uh, Although the wall is, is still a live issue, man. He's you got to give the president credit for fighting on this one. He's and taking a lot of pressure. He's not backing down one inch. And, and I'm really looking forward to seeing or to hearing and seeing what he has to say tonight on this issue. But uh, the fact of the matter is that their willingness, the the Trump administration's willingness from Trump on down to fight back against the media is a, you know, we, we often are told about, oh, you know, the standard that Trump set here or there that we're going to have to live with later. And sometimes that's true. You know, when, when a Democrat comes along and, you know, he's a guy who's, you know, had seven wives and, uh, you know, has a has a fondness for, uh, you know, spending time with exotic dancers. It's going to be tough for Republicans to say, well, that person's not of the character that we want in the White House. Right. So there are some things, some precedents that have been set here that, uh aren't going to be that easy for us to live with or won't be great going down the line. But we make a judgment call about that. And the judgment is that overall, uh, it is more valuable to have Trump uh, pushing for his agenda and have Trump in the White House than the backlash that we deal with, both from the media in a day to day sense and then down the line in our inability without looking hypocritical to criticize a future Democrat politician Uh, for some personal failings. But the fight against the media is, I think, a uh, I think this is this has changed the game. I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way that it was. Uh, I think that Trump has has, you know, kicked the hornet's nest here in in a good way, Um, meaning that now we really see how they respond, how they react. And because of the Internet and because of our ability to draw upon these conversations down the line and and know what the media was saying now, just like we know what they said about Obama. You know, yes, Trump has played a very large role in exposing how left-wing, how progressive, what a bunch of activists the mainstream media are. He's He's been essential in this process. It's r- really, among immigration and him fighting against the media are my two favorite things about Trump, the two best things about this presidency. Trade, we'll see. You know, I don't know. We got to see how it works out with China. That's I'm I'm on the fence on that one, uh, but immigration and fighting back in the media, the president's been incredible, and and then also our ability now. I mean, you as as a listener to the show know that we have access to what the media was saying before in a way that 20 years ago we just didn't. So they could say you know they could pretend that they were just as hard on this president as they were on the last president, or and vice versa, based upon their short and petty political needs. Whereas now we go, no, no, that's not what you, you know, the last time this similar thing happened, this is how you responded. You know, when Obama was, I've got a pet on the phone. I'm going to take action. I'm going to do things. Uh, When Obama was uh, running around in unconstitutional fashion, acting in authoritarian mode, the press was making excuses. When Trump now, with a national emergency that may be declared here pretty soon, in just a matter of, of moments, um, or a matter of hours, I should say. It depends on when you're listening to this, right? It could be the next day. Uh, that's in his statutory authority, but they're saying that he's being some crazy authoritarian with that. You know, they say that he's way he's way out of line on this issue, and I just have to say, well, hold on a second. I remember what the media was like when Obama was in power, and I remember what they're and now I see what they're like with Trump, and that really matters. And then you add to that just how many journalists are tweeting and retweeting uh, left-wing activist propaganda and, and agitprop from the moveon.orgs and the Daily Kos and the Huff post and all these, just these giant piles of steamy liberal crap lousiness on the internet. Uh, and, and and then those journalists turn around and say, oh no, I don't have an opinion. I'm just, you know, just the facts, man. I don't think so. I don't think so. So I, I really like that, uh, that Kellyanne, you know, called out Jimmy Acosta. But the, the problem is that the more that Jimmy Acosta gets called out, the more his fans think that what he's doing is really journalism and, and support him. And the more valuable he becomes in Zucker's war against against uh, Trump. You know, I, I told you, I have a friend who was there when Jeff Zucker and his assistant, she was on the phone and she said, if Trump wants to go to war with CNN, CNN's going to go to war with Trump. That was during the election. Uh, That was during the primary, I think, memory serves. It might have been during the general. I forget now. But I spoke to a person who was there. So that's why when, when, you know, uh, Smug Tapper and Clownish Acosta and and Bro Cuomo and the whole squad of overpaid mediocrities over there, when they get all high and mighty about how their are journos, I'm like, you guys are are just living in in a big lie. You're just all part of a big falsehood. And people who are smart and paying attention have caught on. Uh, as you can tell, I, um, there you have it. Uh, as you can tell, that's something that gets me a bit fired up. Uh, we have more, uh, you know what, we, we could talk about, about health care for a moment here. And, and the latest from my hometown, you know, I just, I leave New York and things take a turn for the worse. Um, I'm not saying it's because I'm not there, but I'm not saying it's not. Uh, this guy D- De Blasio Kaiser Wilhelm de Blasio Warren Wilhelm don't never forget it that was his name forever he changed it in his 20s because who's gonna vote for Warren Wilhelm Guten Tag, yeah uh, De Bla- hey Billy de Blasio he's promised health care for all let's talk about it from this moment on in New York City everyone is guaranteed the right to health care everyone Guaranteed the right to health care. Uh, that's right. They're saying that the, the, that's the mayor of New York City, who at least I'm happy to say, you know, you never hear about him thinking he's going to run for president or our, our terrible governor in the state of New York. Nobody thinks I should run for president, but my name is Cuomo. And therefore, I assume the people will vote for me. And if I yell and look angry whenever I give a public pronouncement, I assume that the fear that I inspire in listeners will force them to vote for me. He thinks he's going to run. De Blasio does not think he's going to run, at least from what I see so far. Uh, But he now is stepping into the national health care discussion because I know it's for New York. It's New York City only. Um, But. New York City has 8 million people, and uh, this is now going to be one of these experiments that we get to see how it functions. How does it work out? Uh, The super liberal mayor here saying that there's going to be a new plan, um, a new plan in place where New York City is going to make sure that 600,000 New Yorkers uh, who don't have insurance will get insurance through Metro Plus, which is the city's public health insurance option. So essentially you're going to have a microcosm here of what a public option would look like, which, you know, liberals love this idea. It's that, oh, I'll just have the, I'll, I'll pay into a government insurance program or more likely the government's going to pay for my insurance in the government insurance program. And that's how they, you know, that's how they plan to sell this thing and that's how they're going to do it. Um, but uh, he's also including illegal immigrants in this. That's right. Now you're going to have a city that's saying we're going to take money from people who are paying taxes and we're going to use that money to give health care away to people who uh, are illegals in the country. And, and I just want to know before we there, there's so much here that's problematic. But what about somebody now who shows up from a foreign country and uh, and says that they want to have a million-dollar heart operation in New York, in New York City. Should, should the taxpayers pick that up? Should the, should the people paying, should my parents, should my siblings who live in New York City, should they all be picking up the tab for anyone from anywhere in the world who shows up and says, I can't afford, I can afford a plane ticket to New York, but I, I can't afford a heart transplant. By the way, a heart transplant costs is about a million dollars. That's what it actually costs to do that. And it might even be a little more. Um, so... Do we have a moral obligation to pay a million dollars for a foreigner's heart surgery? I just want to and how many of them. And do we have an obligation to uh, give medical treatment to anyone who shows up in New York City and have the city of New York pick it up? Uh, I I just want to know the the extent of this. Um, And once you add illegal immigrants into this equation, what you're really saying is that now you are going to have a city government that is... Confiscating money from people via taxation and redistributing it to people who, under the same you know idea of rule of law that they're taking the money from you in the city of New York, they're ignoring the rule of law when it comes to the illegal status of these individuals and giving them goods to be here. You want to talk about making our problem at the border worse. You want to talk about incentivizing illegal immigration. This is a fantastic way of doing it. All that ends up happening here is words going to get out instantaneously, really, within the illegal immigrant community. I mean, we're talking about you can get on you know, Facebook or WeChat or whatever. I don't know what the preferred social media platform is for folks in Mexico and Central America. But they're going to be, you know, if you can get to New York City, you get you get uh, health care paid for now openly. City of New York going to openly pay for your health care. Um, You know, I just also want to know how much how much health care we're going to give to illegals. I mean, is is it full spectrum? Well, what does this really mean? Oh, and the the plan, I would note, And this is where the libs always run into big problems. It's going to cost a hundred million dollars. A hundred million dollars, which is just coming from the taxpayers of New York City. I mean, de Blasio Hasn't been able to destroy New York entirely yet, but I think he's now, now he's starting to feel his stuff a little bit more and he's going to take more aggressive action here. $100 million annually. Now, let's understand that 600,000 New Yorkers do not have, uh, you know, health insurance currently. They're saying they're going to cover 100 million New Yorkers annually under this program and give them health care. Uh, I'm sorry they're gonna spend a hundred million dollars annually uh, you know and that's what the cost will be. Well if you do the math on this, it's talking about a, what a couple of, well, gosh I should I shouldn't have done this on air in real time. you're talking about spending 150 bucks per person for health care? No. Way. Right. Because if it were a million New Yorkers and it's one hundred million dollars, you're talking about a hundred bucks a person. Well, it's six hundred thousand New Yorkers. So, you know, uh, it's going to be how are they going to how are they going to manage to do this? They think it's going to cost one hundred fifty dollars a person for health insurance. That's that's just a fantasy. It'll be way more expensive than that to give people comprehensive health insurance coverage, including illegals. By the way, how many illegals are there? They don't even know. They say the number is 600,000 that don't have insurance. Maybe the number's a million. It's going to, you think giving a million people health insurance is going to cost $100 million? Let me know what that health plan is, where people are only going to cost you $100 a year. Please. But it's good. New York will do this. It's a shame because it's going to start to really destroy my, my hometown. But New York will do this. It will be the Libs in charge. The Libs will own this. The Libs will fail. And at least the rest of the country can say, hey, you know what the canary in the coal mine is? Build the Blasio's health care plan.
0: The show ain't over yet, folks. Keeping it real. It's time for roll call.
1: I love the the funky tunes. Yeah, Brandon, do you like
5: jazz? You're a music guy. You're a DJ. Do you like Do you like jazz? Where are you on this? I do. I've actually gone to a jazz club or two in my day. I was watching a TV show. Can't remember what it was recently, but they just there was this line. It was I think it was The Office.
1: There was this line. It's like, it's like jazz. Like, why can't you just play the right notes? <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. Um, you know, I, I'm not somebody who listens to much jazz. I know some of the, I know some of the classics. Although, if you see, if you start to include Ella Fitzgerald and Nina Simone and some of those artists into jazz, yes. I love that stuff. Right? That, that's more my style. Yeah. Okay. See, see, see I always say, is that jazz? Because if we're qualifying that, I think the jazz that people usually think of, though, is more of the like just borderline music kind of stuff, like, you know, you kind of hear it somewhere and you're like, uh, this is a little too freeform for me. You know, it it needs to have some semblance of melody and, and it needs to make some effort to be pleasant to listen to. I think that's my, that's where I draw the line,
5: Brandon. You're not a beatnik. I'm not not a beatnik. By the way, how is the Guns N' Roses podcast going? It's going quite well, actually. I think, uh, iHeartRadio is going to promote it, uh, this coming year. Well, look at that i know i was just doing it on my own they, they noticed it and uh and yeah it just what, seems to be growing what's coming up on the next episode of the of the guns and roses podcast well i just interviewed i just put it out uh today uh our former manager uh, doug goldstein he was with gnr for 17 years really nice guy he's working with opioid addiction now so we'll talk about anything from just fun stuff with axel to you know uh oh, the opioid crisis just like you do here yeah, oh, if he's really interested in, in combating
1: the opioid crisis, you know, let me uh, give me put him in touch with me so we can get him on on rising. Uh, he would love and, that. Know, maybe we can have him on this show, too, because I mean, I'm I'm all about letting people know what's what's really going on
5: there, because there's a need for decisive policy action for sure. Yeah. No, he's he's in. He travels to the country. He works for something called Matthews Hope dot org uh, from a family who lost their son too too soon. And, you know, it all relates back to all these years. I thought he was fired. Uh, It just turns out he just wanted to be a family man and didn't want to travel with the band anymore. And he's devoted his life to, you know, helping others. And that's all stems from Guns N' Roses. That's my hook. You know, I just this is just uh, anecdotal, but I I can't
1: think of a time when I've heard of somebody who made the decision to step away from something professionally to focus more on on their family. And they regretted it. I got to say, I haven't I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying that that tends not to be what I hear. Same so. with him. He doesn't regret it at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably something that I should keep in mind. Oh, um, well, that's really interesting, man. I, you know, I, I, if I were to ask you, I, I had a thought the other day, you know, what the greatest, um, r- you know, what the greatest rock song of the 80s and 90s is. Do you do you have
5: do you have a horse in that race or is it just too hard for you? I can kind of compartmentalize and not say G and R. It's got to be uh, the the song in the movie that just won the Golden Globe, Bohemian Rhapsody. Really? That's just perfection. Yeah. That that I, song I, I, is just different.
1: I was I was thinking about whether see it's maybe this is a better a better way to set up this comparison, uh, Def Leppard or ACDC. Just all in. ACDC? Are you kidding me? Do pour some sugar on me is a great song, and not just for if you're a dancer, young ladies who are
5: paying for okay. <laughs> college one dollar at a time. We'll have either one of you guys heard Axl Rose sing Bohemian Rhapsody with Queen. No, that sounds pretty. awesome. That combination right there could be your your greatest rock song. It was the Freddie Mercury tribute they did uh, back in the day. He sang it with uh, Elton John. You got to see that on YouTube. Uh, have any Have any of you seen recent photos of Axl Rose looking like a homeless bag lady? Because those are interesting. We're all gonna look like that someday. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, if, um, if we do Botox and eat cheesesteaks all night long.
1: It's just, it's just, you know, when you have someone like that, I just picture him with like the long blonde hair and like right after he's been on some bender and destroyed a, a hotel room. And now I feel like
5: I feel like he probably wants to wear a Snuggie a lot, you know? And I need to correct myself. It was 75. The, uh, the song Bohemian Rep City came out. So I'd have to think about it. Maybe it is a uh, Sweet Child or something like that of the quintessential song. But I don't know. I think just FM radio ruined Def Leppard for me because they're the band that they play six times an hour. Yeah, I guess. Def Leppard's pretty awesome,
1: though. There's even some good stuff that, like, you know, if you put it in there, I mean, isn't Photograph a Def Leppard song? I, I get into some of the deep tracks, you know, I'm not just a. A pour some sugar on me guy. ACDC is probably and back in black. I think is probably a better rock. I, I'm really thinking more rock anthems too, but I, I think there's a case you made that Sweet child of mine is the greatest rock song of the eighties and nineties. I really do. I, th- I think you can, I think obviously people can argue this till they're blue in the face, but sweet child of mine is definitely in the running for just, you know, a rock song that is number one for me. Producer Mike, do you, do you have a pick?
5: Um, it's a good question. I, I'm a big guns N' roses fan too. Um, trying to think of something that's better than sweet child of mine um you know what's funny about aerosmith a- you got to respect aerosmith
1: cuz he's been in the game so long right? and and ha- does have a lot of a lot of really good songs that said though i don't think there's one aerosmith song that is like the uh, the anthem that we will remember forever. A- a- Aerosmith, we celebrate the whole catalog, right? <laughs> Kenny G, I celebrate yeah. his whole catalog. Oh, Michael Bolton, rather, I celebrate the yeah. whole
5: catalog. Um, but yeah, I don't really. how, don't how really About a... uh, Journey, "Don't Stop Believing." That's a good one. That's a good one. And That's good. fun fact: uh, the only Aerosmith song to ever go number one uh, is the one from uh, Armageddon. Don't want to miss a thing, which might really? be the, that might be their worst th- song, in my opinion. But and, and uh, you know, you know, what I, I, I got to say about Journey, Don't Stop Believing is, Mike, you just
1: brought that up. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm transported to every New England college bar I went to in college <laughs> uh, where, you know, it was like 2 a.m. And, you know, uh, you know, Cindy, Cindy, what's her face? You know, was wasn't uh, wasn't leaving the bar with me, but I was there with my buddies and we were going to, you know, pour some out. We we're going to drink some beer. And uh, yeah,
5: yeah, you know, it's 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 the ultimate like almost last call song. Yeah, and it was the ultimate last. It takes me to the Sopranos. That's where it takes me to. Ah, last, uh last talking about, speaking of last call, last scene, last song in the Sopranos. That's you what know, I, was I thinking haven't too. even. I
1: haven't even seen all the Sopranos.
0: Oh uh, man,
5: you gotta get on that.
0: I, I, know, just, I just I just ruined the finale for you, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, all right.
1: that's all right. I've already, I've already heard that's about how it how it ends. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah. All right, you know what, guys? I got. I'm actually going to hit it this 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 way. We'll, we won't give uh, a an, an anxiety attack to our our affiliates uh, who have to make sure that we stay on the clock here. So let me go into a quick break. We come back. We will do roll call. We got a little sidetracked here with our uh, with our Freedom Hut team to talk about some some music. I've got a little nostalgic for the 80s and the 90s. Uh, but we'll come back and do roll call. So uh, stay right there.
2: The show ain't over yet, folks. It's
1: time for roll call. All right. No messing about. Right to roll call this time. Julie. Hey, Buck. Love the show. Don't sweat it about being 40, almost 40, and not married or with a family yet. I'll be 39 soon. My husband will be th- 43. And we're expecting our fourth kid. Uh, We moved to be closer to his work, but now he works from where we moved from. We're happy where we live and have started our six-year-old on a great school, so he commutes. You can make it work for your family when you have one. On the political... Thank you, Julie. On the political front, the left will implode because they have stood for everything to be inclusive and cannot stand for anything without offending someone. They have lost control of the monster they created. The right will implode simply because we cannot unite. Boo! And Ginsburg is seriously not in good health. She's old. Thanks for the great analysis, Julie. Uh, You know, Julie, I I think you're right that um, I think you're right that the left will eventually implode. But you have to remember that they might get themselves into power and then be able to do a tremendous amount of damage when they implode. Right. So. Uh, they just because eventually their ideology is doomed to self-contradiction and failure, it doesn't mean that we can ignore it, because in the meantime, well, what is, you know, where does that really take us? Right. Like, where where are we now uh, in terms of left wing control and a a progressive backlash to Trumpism that could set the country back uh, in, in a whole bunch of ways? So. Uh, I, I hear you, but it's not enough to say, yeah, the left is going to the left is going to consume itself. Um, it will eventually, but they might consume us in the meantime. And that's why we have to be on guard and have to have to fight back against this. Uh, William writes, all the snowflakes in America are going to hate socialism for three reasons. First, they'll have to work at a job they'll hate for years. Secondly, they won't be able to make any money to save up for that Tesla or home they want to own so bad. And thirdly, nobody else is going to care what they think about the first two big disappointments in their lives. Um, they'll have to work at the job, make his Tesla, nobody else, okay. And then he writes, who gives a rat's behind about the worthless federal workers who are minus their non-essential paycheck right now? Most of them are hypocrites without a paycheck for a reality check. Wow, William! Ah, wow. Williams, that's rough. Like William, there there are some really good, really good people in the federal workforce. Lots of them, and and they're not getting a paycheck right now. So I, I can't I can't hop on board your "Who gives a rat's?" And he didn't write behind uh, about the for the federal workers here. Uh, a lot of them are doing really essential jobs that we want them to be doing. You know, border patrol is showing up without pay and doing their job. For example, at least some of border patrol is. So uh, Coast Guard, you know, there are others that are working without pay. Um, I'm not saying that means that this isn't a fight we should have and that Trump is wrong to have this fight. I'm just saying, you know, let's not let's not take this too far. I mean, it's not it's not the fault of the 15 percent of non-essential federal workers that that they work for agencies that did not get covered. Um, But I hear you on the general snowflakeism of American uh, left wingers and, and socialists. So there's that. Uh, Eric writes, Democrats, quick, find the doctor and send him to 1976 to tell Congress not to give the president emergency powers. Yeah, Eric, as we have discussed uh, and and as our our main man, Andy McCarthy, made very clear, uh, they have given the, the Congress has given president the authority to do this. He has the authority. People who are saying otherwise do not believe in the plain language of clear law. Kyle writes, also the notorious RBG will pull a weekend at Bernie's before she steps down under Trump or she'll resign a few months before the 2020 election and give Democrats ammo to make Senate Republicans look hypocritical for taking up any nominee a la Merrick Garland. Um, Okay, I got to tell you, this RBG thing that that some liberals are saying, it's just getting weird. There is a there is a tweet today from a, and this is not a rando, not some random person. This is a, here you go, some guy named Roger Simon on Twitter who has a a considerable following. Uh, He's got thousands and thousands of followers, and I think he works in politics in some capacity, or maybe he's a journalist, I don't know. But he put this out there, and this tweet got a lot of attention. Quote, if it were possible, would you subtract one day off your life and add it to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life for one extra day of good health? If just 10,000 people did this, it would add 27 productive years to her life. That's just weird. It's just creepy. You know, it's just a strange thing to do. It's not something that a normal person, and I don't mean take a year off. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a ridiculous premise. But even to think this way, you, know, you would take a day off your life for some stranger because she's on the Supreme Court because we need to add years to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life because she's so necessary for the future of the Republic and turning it into a, you know, socialist, they think paradise, I say hellscape. I mean, that, that's really what they've got here. It's just, it's just a bizarre thing to do, a bizarre thing to say. And there is a cult around Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That is, that is truly weird. It, the, the only way to say it is just that it's, it's strange. I mean, it, It does not make sense for people to be as uh, invested in a Supreme Court justice that they've never met such that they would even, you know, give days off their lives for this. Such a there's such a bunch of weirdos, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg types. Dan writes, hey, Buck, 17 year restaurant professional as a chef cast iron for a good steak. All caps. If it's an inch and a half plus, I usually sear it hard on one side. Flip it and throw it right in the oven for the perfect medium rare. But I prefer it seared and basically mooing myself. Shields and forks high, Dan. Well, Dan, thanks to hear from an actual chef and an expert on this one. You know, the the reverse sear, I'm going to tell you guys, I reverse seared a uh, filet mignon. Mais oui, bien sûr, filet mignon is parfait. I, I did a little filet mignon for myself last night. Chef Buck, you know. Do I sit here at home by myself and wear a little like chef hat? Maybe. Can neither confirm nor deny. But I did make myself a filet, uh, a filet last night, filet mignon, and uh, it was perfect. I mean, I I absolutely crushed it. And one thing I'll say is that really, especially with a filet, because you don't, season all of it at least i don't i mean people usually don't season you, to really go hard with the pepper and the salt on the tops that you're searing to create that crust uh and and to have a real flavorful crust that you cut into that makes a big difference um and i did the reverse uh sear method once again just to kind of perfect it i did it with that big steak worked out really well and then i did the reverse sear on the filet mignon and all reverse sear means it's oven first then sear on the stovetop and chef dan is obviously right get a cast iron i should get you know what we should get lodge which makes cast iron pans producer mike let's make a note of this let's see if they want to do a, a promotion on the show because i'm basically giving them free press all the time anyway um uh, because it, it's one of the best pieces of, of kitchen equipment i've ever bought so uh there there you have it um let's see here aaron Writes, Hey, Buck, thanks so much for your show. I especially like the Shields High episodes. I learned a lot from them and from your show in general. Shields High. Well, Aaron, thank you. Shields High. I enjoyed that. I mean, the, the, the podcast and I, I will bring it back at some point. It's just it's a tremendous amount of, of time and effort. And uh, I, I wish I could do more. Um, that's all I can tell you. I wish I wish I had more that I could do with it. Um, Ryan writes, hey, Buck, great show. Occasionally to punish myself. I listened to the Pod Save America podcast. John Favreau and company are pretty deranged. I think they're stupid and moronic, uh, or they think it's stupid and moronic, rather, to think the wall would work. Just think about that. They say it. Um, also, listening to the malice and profanity of that show is draining by itself makes me appreciate the hut when I switch back. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I am smarter than those guys and nicer than those guys uh, and could take any of them. So there's that. Thanks so much for joining, team. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Shields high. We got a new year, so if you want to do things the smart way when it comes to hiring, you got to start off strong by making sure you go to ziprecruitercom buck to hire the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds quality candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job, so you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., and this rating comes from hiring sites on TrustPilot with over a thousand reviews. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address: ZipRecruiter.com/buck. If you love this show, team, show your support and z- support for ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com/buck. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com/buck because ZipRecruiter is simply. The smartest way to hire.